We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. December 25th, 1775, then General George Washington had suffered a series of military defeats, and in need of a decisive victory, he decided to attack a Hessian garrison in Trenton during the Revolutionary War. This later became known as the Battle of Trenton. Well, that Christmas night, a true nor'easter blew in, and Washington's men marched in eight hours of rain, sleet, and snow. No one would have expected such an attack in such weather on such a night as this. However, a Hessian messenger caught wind of Washington's whereabouts and wrote down his coordinates and rode ahead to Trenton with a handwritten note that he delivered to his commanding officer. The commanding officer took the note and placed it unread in his coat pocket. After all, no one would have expected such an attack in such weather on such a night as Christmas. Well, Washington attacked, the Hessians surrendered, the commander died. Found in his pocket the next morning was the unwritten, unopened letter warning him of Washington's coming assault. Glory could have been his. He had the letter in his hand. He could have been the one to stomp out those belligerent revolutionaries. We might all be having tea and crumpets right now. There would be no $1 bill, but he lost because he failed to read the message. He failed to expect what should have been expected. I wonder how often we treat God's word the same way. A message in one ear and out the other. A sermon served but undigested. Notes taken but never applied. And as a result, we experience defeat when we should experience victory, all because we fail to expect what should have been expected. Well, today in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, we're going to see that God's people are called to expect certain things. We're gonna see that God's people are his agents of blessing and they should not be surprised when they experience animosity from those whom they face. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 and as you're turning there, let me kind of get us caught up. Broadly speaking, Genesis is a, is a book about divine blessing. We see God creating and then blessing creation. We see Adam and Eve were to remain and enjoy the sphere of God's blessing, but they rejected God, a sin inherent to every preceding generation or post-generation. But God did not abandon mankind. He chose Abraham through whom his seed would bless the world. And so Abraham's story is a story about moving toward God's blessing, what it means to take God by faith, and having to trust in God's timing of things. Abraham will have a son named Isaac, and Isaac's story is essentially a continuation of Abraham's. Abraham will have a grandson named Jacob. Jacob's story is a story about experiencing God's blessing. If you recall, Jacob is constantly chasing blessing, but in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places. 
And it's not until he comes to the realization that only God is the true source of all blessing, that all blessings come from God. And once God's blessing is realized in Jacob's life, he has a son named Joseph, and Joseph steps on the scene. His story is a story about being a blessing by extending God's blessing to the world. And so what we have here is moving towards blessing, experiencing blessing, and then being a blessing to the world about. And so Joseph was God's agent of blessing. In retrospect, we know this. If you recall, when everyone was in dire circumstances and dying from famine, Joseph's family, the future nation of Israel, and all of Egypt come to him. In fact, Scripture says all the earth comes to Joseph to be blessed by God. Joseph was God's agent of blessing. And guess what? Who are God's agents of blessing in this present dispensation? You are. The church, Christians, are God's agents of blessing to the world. Here's why. We are the only people on the planet that manifest God's kingdom agenda. We are the only people in the planet that incarnate the love of Christ, the concern of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ to a dying and famished world. And so you, Christian, are God's agent of blessing to the world. And as such, there are things we can learn from the life of Joseph. And here's what we're going to see. A slide should pop up with the homiletical outline of this lesson, and it'll be kind of like handlebars for us as we go through here. And I'm hoping that they'll put that slide on the back screen because it's not in my notes. There it is. All right. First thing we're going to see is the misunderstanding of the dreamer. The next thing we'll see is the mistreatment of the dreamer. This is Joseph. Then we'll see the ministry of guidance and arrival by God. And then we'll see the ministry of blessing by the believer. Now, if you don't uh, didn't get all that, you can download the sermon notes on our website. Uh, they went out this week. But... That's the preview. Now the story begins with a bit of suspense. In chapter 36, Esau, the antagonist of Jacob, was just described as prospering in progeny and prospering in property and prospering in possessions and a land of kings from his lineage. In contrast, Jacob is described in verse one as living in the land where his father had sojourned. Literally, living in the land where his father wandered. The difference in description is a bit suspect. One is settled and prospering in progeny and possessions and property. One is unsettled. But... I could be wrong because in verse two, the progeny of Jacob is announced. Verse two, look with me there. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now pause for a second. One would expect the patriarch's 12 children to be announced, but we're given only one. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. It's as if Jacob only had one son. Did Jacob ever have a problem with acting like he had only one son? In verses three and four, we're told twice 
of Jacob's favoritism of Joseph. Verse three, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons. And this favoritism was obvious to the brothers. Verse four, his brothers saw that their, bro- that their father loved him more than all his brothers. Jacob's favoritism will move him to make Joseph a multicolored tunic, and he's effectively elevating him to chieftain before his death. Now, Joseph is the youngest at this point of the 12. And Jacob's favoritism of Joseph will move his brothers to hate him. Notice the escalation of the brothers' hatred of Joseph. Verse four, he is loved the most, so they hate him. Verse five, he tells them, tells the brothers he had a dream, and so they hated him even more. In verse eight, he describes the dream to them, and then they hated him even more. Three times their hatred of Joseph is mentioned. They hated him, they hated him even more, and then they hated him even more than they hated him after they first hated him. It's interesting that the phrase, and even more, in Hebrew is va Yosefu, which sounds a whole lot like va Yosef and Joseph. It's a Hebrew wordplay. The very sound of Joseph's name spells hatred to their hearts. They do not like Joseph because of this favoritism. When I was a lad, I I used to raise chickens, and whenever a hen had an imperfection on her skin and another hen noticed that imperfection, that hen would go run towards the hen with the imperfection and start pecking at it. And when that one hen started running, guess what all the other hens would start doing? All the other hens would start running in the direction of that one hen that noticed the imperfection and all began to, would begin to peck at the same thing. So you'd have one hen notice something different about another hen that would lead all the other hens to team up on that one hen and peck her until that mark became indistinguishable from the rest of her body. Only then would they leave her alone. Favoritism can leave a painful mark on others because people will poke other people like chickens peck chickens if they notice favoritism. Be wary of favoritism, whether you're the one showing it or the one receiving it, because as we will see, it can lead to misunderstanding and even worse. Now, Joseph... Joseph will have two dreams. Dreams number, dream number one, he tells to his brothers, while dream number two, we are told, he is another dream that he relates. So it's not dream number one, not necessarily dream number one confirming dream number two as traditionally understood, and as will be the case with Pharaoh later on. The semantics and grammar are different. Notice dream number one, it's in verse seven. Look with me there. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. What's mentioned four times in that one verse? 
sheaves of grain. So the issue here is sheaves of grain. It will be because of the brothers' need for grain during the famine that they will go to Joseph in Egypt, who just so happens to be in charge of all of it. Notice their interpretation of Joseph's dream in verse eight. Are you actually going to reign over us or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They interpret Joseph's dream as a figment of an egotistical imagination where he will rule and reign and effectively dominate over them. There's no mention of grain in their interpretation. Keep in mind, these are herdsmen, not farmers. Grain is what should stick out. But they completely misunderstand Joseph's motives. Joseph is not being proud or arrogant by sharing his dreams. This is what you do. He is a man portrayed as perfect throughout the Old Testament, a man of impeccable character. He wasn't, but that's how he's portrayed. But they misunderstand Joseph. Dream number two, he relates. It's in verse nine. Lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, traditionally, the sun and the moon has been understood as representing Jacob, Joseph's father, and Rachel, Joseph's mother, and the 11 stars, his 11 brothers. And this is no doubt in part due to Jacob's own interpretation of Joseph's dream found in verse 10. Verse 10, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Question, is Jacob's interpretation of Joseph's dream correct? Will Rachel go to Egypt and bow down before Joseph? No. She will die before they even go there. Will Jacob go to Egypt? Yes, he will. Will he bow down to Joseph? No, he will not. In fact, the opposite happens. Joseph bows down to Jacob. And so that interpretation is a bit questionable. Now, it's interesting that the verb relate regarding his dream that he related also means to count. Numbers mark time and so do astronomical bodies. So the sun and the moon and the 11 stars could mark 13 which so happens to be the exact number of years that Joseph will be in prison before his exaltation in, jo- in Egypt. If so, that would mean then dream number one is what will happen? They will survive the famine because of Joseph's provision of grain. And that would make dream number two when it would happen, 13 years after Joseph's imprisonment. And so the response should be, hallelujah, because of our brother who is blessed by God, we are going to survive the famine. We've got an inside man. Praise God. But instead, it's a rebuke, and we're going to kill you. It goes something like this. You clock in at work every day at 9 a.m., 
Nothing special, that's the time that you are required in your job description to be there. You're not late, you're on time. The same goes for when you clock out. You clock out at 5 p.m. every day, never before. Your, your job description permits that. Your coworker comes up to you and he says, you know, I've noticed you clock in at 9 a.m. every single day. You haven't been late, I've been watching. Um, but I clock in at 8 a.m every single day, sometimes even earlier. And I notice you clock in at 5 p.m., never a minute too soon, but I don't clock out until 6, sometimes 6.30. I've been working here five years. You've been working here, what, a year and a half, maybe two? How come you got that promotion and I didn't? How come our boss likes you more than he likes me. I don't like you. Listen, church, is it possible to experience misunderstanding and animosity simply because you are blessed by God? Yes, it is. And trust me, Christian, you are so blessed. You are so blessed. You know God. Just think of the notion that you know God. You know his word. You, know, you have this revelation from heaven that tells us the trajectory of human history. You know the problem with humanity. It's called sin. You know the solution to humanity. His name is Jesus. You know the message that brings life to a dying world. You have answers that come from heaven that are beyond us but out of God's grace have condescended to us. You are a blessed and a peculiar people beyond your recognition. We can never even begin to wrap our minds around the extent to which we are a blessed people. Amen? And guess what? Blessing can attract animosity. And so you should not be surprised, agent of God's blessing to the world, if you experience misunderstanding from those whom you bless. Look at Joseph. So far, he was already, by 10 verses, he is hated, he is envied, and he is misunderstood by those whom he will later save. And so we should expect no different. Well, this story that began in chapter 37 with ominous undertones in a land of wandering continues. Jacob sends Joseph on a perilous journey of 50 plus miles to Shechem to go check on the welfare or the shalom of his brothers. Now, keep in mind in verse 4, the brothers hated Joseph so much that they could not speak peace or shalom to him. And Shechem is a land back in chapter 34 where these guys, Joseph's brothers, virtually slaughtered every male in that city. It is a land of blood where they killed every man with a sword. This is where this hated, misunderstood, envied brother is going and it is no short journey. It would take days. And in verse 18, guess what? They see him coming. 
When they saw him from a distance, incidentally, how do you think they noticed him from a distance? Hey, Reuben, is that who I think it is? Do my eyes fail me? Yeah. There's only one man in the land of Canaan with a coat like that. And before he came close, they plotted against him to put him to death. The brother's plot to kill Joseph is, is expressed in no uncertain terms. Verse 18, put him to death. Verse 20, let us kill him. Verse 21, take his life. Verse 26, kill our brother. And the plot? And the plan is expressed in verse 20. Kill him and we'll throw him in one of the pits and we'll just say an evil or a wild animal, it's the same word, devoured or ate him. No problem. Now, Reuben, the oldest, will intervene and say, hey, you know, <clears throat> let's not kill him with our own hands. Let's just throw him in one of the pits and we'll just let him die by exposure and starvation. Now, Reuben hopes to come back around and rescue him out of the pit, most likely to restore his honor as firstborn son. And in verse 23, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. It's a cistern. And so it's death by exposure and starvation. Now, Reuben will return to find his brother bound a caravan for Egypt, and we'll come back around to that. The brothers bring Joseph's blood-drenched tunic to their father, Jacob, and in verse 31, here's what they say. We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's, not our brother's, your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic, a wild, or, a wild animal or beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. It's interesting that the word for pit is the exact same word for cistern, which is often metaphorically used as a grave. And throughout your Old Testament, Whenever humans are the object of the, of the verb to throw, they're throwing Joseph into the pit, every single time a human is used as the object of the verb to throw, it's referred to, it refers to one thing every single time. You know what that is? A human corpse. It always refers to a dead body. Now remember, the plot was to say that an evil or a wild animal ate him. Don't miss this. Notice what the brothers do immediately after they throw Joseph's body into the pit in verse 25. They sat down to eat. Question. Who are the real animals that ate Joseph? The brothers. They are the ones 
who did it. Not only do they misunderstand their brother, but they severely mistreat this agent of blessing who will be the one who saves their lives and their families and their progeny. They mistreat this agent of blessing. Severely mistreat him. I recall during the peak of the pandemic, there was a Christian organization that provided millions of dollars of its own money and resources to bless a community stricken by COVID, and this is when nobody really knew anything about it. And uh, they provided a full-scale mobile hospital staffed by medical professionals, all of which were volunteers who were just Christians who wanted to bless a community and put their own life at risk. However, the local leaders in that city rejected them and they slandered them and they took it even a step further and trolled them everywhere they went and set up a team to investigate them. Do you know why? Because all the medical professional volunteers to volunteer in this organization had to, had to sign a Christian doctrinal statement of faith. That's it. Do you know who else signed a Christian doctrinal statement of faith like that? Every single member at Denton Bible Church. That's it. And did you know what that organization did? They kept blessing. They kept serving however they could. They kept loving that community despite the animosity however they could. They kept helping in every way that they could because being a Christian means that part of your DNA is that you are an agent of God's blessing to the world around you and that you should not be surprised when you are mistreated by those whom you bless. So church, agent of God's blessing to the community and sphere of influence around you, do not be surprised when you experience rejection, trolling, slander, and even severe mistreatment. Don't be surprised. We've been told. But, let me put a smile on your face. There is a glimmer of hope. Jump with me back to verse 15 where Joseph was sent on that perilous journey to Shechem. Verse 15, a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field. Just wandering around. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. An unnamed man so happens to find Joseph wandering about in a field 50 miles from home. You can't help but think he was lost. Why is he wandering around in a field? And this unnamed man just so happens to know the whereabouts of Joseph's brother, brothers and informs him. So this unnamed man just so happens to be the right person at the right place at the right time 
with the right information to help Joseph on his journey. Can God do that? Shake your heads, yes. He can do that. When the apostle Paul was blinded by the Lord, he was guided back to his home, and then the Lord tells Cornelius to go and meet the apostle Paul. Cornelius was told the house that Paul would be in, the street that the house was on, the room that Paul would be in, and what Paul would be doing in that room. Does God know exactly where you are at even when you do not? Yes, he does. Can God provide you, Christian, with the right people at the right time at the right place, with the right information to help you on your journey, regardless of the circumstances. Yes, he can. So don't miss this part. God's agents of blessing can trust that God will sovereignly guide them on their journey, whether they're lost, whether they are misunderstood, or whether they are mistreated. You can trust God's guiding in your life. Charles Stanley, all 88 years old of him, came and spoke to us at DTS at a chapel some two years ago. And he said, after all my years of ministry, one thing has stuck out to me the most, and it's what my dad told me when I was a kid. My dad said, son, you trust God no matter what and just leave the consequences to him. Son, Charlie boy, if God tells you to run your head through that wall, you do it. Don't worry about the wall. God will make a hole. You just trust God no matter what and leave the consequences to him. That is what Joseph does throughout his entire saga. He is a man of impeccable character who simply trusts God and walks in obedience. And so as you walk with God, Christian, you trust him. You walk in obedience, and he will sovereignly guide you regardless of your circumstance. Too often we make mountains out of our circumstances instead of trusting in the God who moves the mountains. He can guide you through it all. And there's another glimmer of hope. The brothers change their mind. We're not just going to, we're not gonna kill them ourselves. We're not gonna leave them into the pit to die. We got a better idea. Verse 26 let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now, there seems to be some intentional ambiguity in that paragraph. Was it the Ishmaelites? Or the, are the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, are they the same people group? Who pulled Joseph out of the pit? Was it the brothers or was it the Midianites? Grammatically, we can't tell. The sell was to the Ishmaelites, but we're told in verse 36, it was the Midianites who sold him into Egypt. And then later, Joseph will say, wasn't the Ishmaelites, wasn't the Midianites, it was actually you, brothers, who sold me into Egypt. 
It seems the narrator does not want us, the reader, to be able to pin down who sold Joseph into Egypt, but rather the fact is that he got there. That seems to be the point. This passage ends in verse 36 with Joseph in Egypt. And this is where all the world will come to him to experience God's blessing. When I first started seminary for a variety of reasons and, and cho- life choices, my wife and I were, were making uh, a combined income of well under $2,000. And we had been encouraged to go into, uh, they, people had been encouraging me to apply to seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. And that was a sticking point because not only did I have enough money to pay for classes, but the application fee was $50. And at that time, $50 just so happened to be the exact amount we had allocated for our weekly uh, grocery budget. And I remember holding up that check and just saying, God, please make starving this week worth it. (laughs) Get me into DTS. No mind how I'm gonna pay for a class. One class at DTS was a month's income. Take one step at a time. Well, I get into DTS, now I have no idea how I'm gonna pay for it, but then I get another letter telling me that I received a two-year scholarship. Now, I'm in a four-year program, I'm doing the THM, and one step at a time, the first two years are paid for, praise the Lord, there's a little bit of fees and stuff I couldn't pay for either and that the scholarship didn't cover, but then a family from my previous church of about 50 people, two families came to me and they said, hey, we would like to cover the rest of that. Praise God. Well, year three rolls around and that scholarship ends and I don't know how I'm gonna pay for year three. My wife and I are transitioning out of ministry at this church. And so I so happened to be meeting with a few people to seek counsel about what I should do. And because I went through Young Guns two years, three years before that, and I'd stayed in contact with Tom, I sought his counsel, and we went and had breakfast, and Tom said uh, what everybody was telling me to say. He says, you just stay there. You be faithful there. You don't hold anything back. And then just don't make any long-term commitments, and if something comes up, let them know you'd probably take a step in that direction. I said, great, got my car, and on my way home, I get a phone call, and I don't recognize the number, and believe it or not, it was Tom. Now, I didn't even know Tom knew how to use a cell phone. (laughs) I knew that this was an act of God Almighty, but I was wrong as to how. He told me, hey, I'm gonna, I want you to meet with Jerry Falbo, our executive pastor, and uh, to have an interview. Now, I'm thinking, this was not my intention. I did not think it would happen this way, But at the time, I was like, if Tom is setting me up with our executive pastor to have an interview, I I might actually be working at Denton Bible Church. But that's not how it works at Denton Bible Church. (laughs) I meet with Jerry, and Jerry's like, yeah, I'm looking at your resume, and uh, we just don't have any positions open for you. And I was like, all right, Uh, sorry. Uh, I'm looking at your resume, you wanna preach, and you know, we've got one of those, and... uh, But what I didn't tell you is that whenever I went in to meet Jerry for that interview, I had to wait five or 10 minutes in the offices, in the lobby of the offices, and there was Drew Anderson. Now, at the time, I didn't know Drew Anderson all that well, but we had crossed paths plenty of times riding the train from Denton to Dallas to go to seminary. 
And so he knew who I was, and we had some good conversations along the way. And he said, hey, man, what are you doing here? He knew I was on staff at another church. And I said, I'm actually uh, applying for a job with Jerry Fal- or Mr. Falbo. He goes, oh, hold on a second. And he disappears for five minutes and he comes back. Now, if you know Drew, he's kind of an intense guy. And he's like looking at me, he's like, you're good, man. You're good, don't worry about it, you're good. And I was like, I didn't know what to make of that. I was really nervous. And so I go in and Jerry tells me, sorry, Logan, there's just not a position open for you. But Drew just came in here and he said, an internship has opened up in his department and you would need to set up a meeting with him to take that job if you're interested. So I set up a, uh, a meeting with Drew and it was a, a, financially, it was a lateral movement right over. But what is amazing is, is because I had gone through Young Guns and because I was already a couple years into seminary, I qualified for DBC's tuition assistance and my year three was covered. Oh, God bless this church. Mm. Year four, I received a full ride again. And so I finished seminary making under $2,000 a month. And I walked this past May. And you know what? Just as God sovereignly guided me through that whole journey that I shared with you, God sovereignly got me to my destination. Just as God sovereignly guided Joseph and got him to Egypt where he will be a blessing to the world, God will sovereignly guide you where you need to be to be a blessing to the world around you. Not only can you trust agents of God's blessing in God's sovereign guiding you through the perils of life, but you can trust that God will sovereignly get you where you need to be. You can trust him from beginning, middle, and all the way to the end. Amen? And so agents of blessing, trust God in every situation as he will guide you and he will get you there. So let's put all this together. In retrospect, was Joseph God's agent of blessing to the world? Yes, he was. Are you currently God's agent of blessing to the world? Yes, you are. Did Joseph experience misunderstanding and mistreatment from those whom he would bless? Yes, he did. Will you experience misunderstanding and mistreatment from those whom you bless? Yes, you will. In other words, God's agents of blessing should anticipate animosity and should not be surprised when they face it. But did God sovereignly guide Joseph on his journey? Yes. Will God sovereignly guide you on your journey? Yes. Did God sovereignly get Joseph to where he needed to be? Yes, he did. Will God sovereignly get you where you need to be? Yes, he will. So even though you will experience animosity, you can trust in God's sovereignty. Here's why that's important. It's easy for us to think that when things aren't going well, that somehow God is no longer in control. When things are going great, God's in control, but when things are not going great, somehow God is not in control. Isn't it funny how we can flip that switch just like that? 
But let me tell you something, God is either sovereign or he is not. And trust me, he is. Every iota in this universe is contingent on his present control of all things. There is nothing that God does not allow or is in direct control of. God is sovereign over everything. And it's also easy for us to think that when we experience animosity from those whom we bless, that somehow God is not involved in it, that somehow God isn't in it because these people didn't receive the blessing. God must not be involved in it because they misunderstand me, because they mistreat me. I just won't do that again. No. It was through animosity that God used Joseph to save the world. Too often, the expected becomes the unexpected because we fail to read the message. But the message is clear. Anticipate animosity while trusting God's sovereignty. You know, Denton Bible really is a hub full of agents of blessing. Last year alone, just our congregants sent 3,000 boxes of for Operation Christmas Child around the world. Now, these boxes contain discipleship material and gifts. Uh, we collectively, from all the partners, sent out over 20,000 Operation Christmas Child boxes. This is just one way that I want to share with you. You can be an agent of blessing. These go around the world. Don't miss this, that from these shoe boxes, hundreds of churches are planted every single year. Hundreds of churches are planted by you taking a shoebox, filling it with the stuff that's in the list out there. It has gospel material and discipleship material, and we know for a fact a shoebox has led to a church over and over and over again. Since OCC started, over 12 and a half million children have been discipled and have trusted in Jesus Christ. So if God is stirring you this morning, how can I be an agent of blessing today right now? What can I do? How can I spend 15 bucks and have an eternal impact? You can go out into the foyer and there are, there's information out there for you. Tomorrow is the, is the deadline. But this isn't just charity, all right? This is changing the world, just like Joseph. Another way that you can be an agent of blessing to the world around you is simply by inviting somebody to the feast you're gonna have this Thursday. And just share with them why you're thankful. This church has so many resources for you to be an agent of blessing. Resources and ideas. We've got some people on staff, Brent Bowen and Nathan McCarter, who just a few weeks ago did Halloweeny and Boogers. You know what that is? Where if you wanted to, you could have signed up for this and we would have put together a kit for you to make hot dog, all the amenities for hot dogs and burgers and gospel material, and you post up in your local community and you just give this stuff out. Because we are about our Father's business of being an agent of blessing. 
And so if you have questions and you wanna know, hey, how can I grow in being an agent of blessing to my community? How can I take part in changing the world around me? It's right here, it's right here. Just remember this, that as you go out and you incarnate the love of Christ and the concern of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and as you display God's kingdom agenda, you are being God's agent of blessing to the world. Whether the world recognizes it or not, doesn't matter. You are being an agent of blessing. You are Denton Bible Church. God's agents of blessing. So go and be a blessing to your community. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work that you have done in every single one of our lives. That because of your son Jesus, we were converted. And in this life, we are guided. And that one day we will see you as you are. I pray that we would align our lives to your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. You would enable us to trust you and to walk obediently. That we would be a blessing, but remember to anticipate animosity while we trust in your sovereignty. God, convict us to be this kind of people, your kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.